Church, it is good to be with you guys today. Um, how y'all doing? Y'all doing well? Good. It's good to be with you. Um, I, I don't know if you got our communication that we sent out over the last few days, but uh, we're, we're continuing our series today. Today I'm talking about the gospel and sex. And so if you didn't get our communication about children, um, this sermon's probably not for, for, uh, for children under 15, 16-ish. So that's kind of up to you. I, I, I didn't want my 12-year-old in here. And so just to let you know that before we get started, um, we're going to be in several scriptures today. If you want to start in Genesis, we're going to be in Genesis. So we're going to switch over to Song of Solomon, then back to Genesis. Then we're going to be in Ephesians. So you can follow along with me in scripture. If not, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the scriptures on the screen, and that's fine. But as I said a second ago, we're continuing our series called The Gospel And. And as Holland talked about last week, we're looking at, and I want you to hear this little intro here. Tune in for just a second. Can I, it's not just an intro. It's critical that you kind of understand where we're coming from with the series. But how the gospel of Jesus, and, and hopefully by this point, if you've been hanging out with us long enough, you know what the gospel is. It's just the simple truth that, that Jesus has paid for all of our sins through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that um, the gospel doesn't just deal with eternal events that the gospel doesn't just address our, our salvation, but the gospel deals with everyday events. And that hopefully what this does is this series sets up for us a framework. It sets up a framework that, that we're able to, uh, uh, the gospel, we're able to allow the gospel to, to be the lens through which we view all of life. And because and that's what it's intended to do. And not only the lens that we view all of life, but it's the avenue through which we do everything in our life. And last week, Holm talked about the gospel and depression, did a great job of that. And today I'm going to talk about God, the gospel and sex. And I'm going to share with you guys why we chose, um, why I chose the gospel and sex. Because there's a number of topics we could have talked about in this gospel and series. And, and, and here's the thing, I, I get that as long as there's been sin in the world, there's been sexual sin. I understand that. Sexual sin is not new to the church by any stretch of the imagination. One of the books of the Bible is almost selectively talking or specifically talking about that rather. Uh, sexual sin is most definitely not due or, or new to the culture. Um, but there has, there's something that has occurred in our culture over the last year that deeply concerns me. And it's over the last year this thing's happened. And I'm not one of these preachers that, that gets all freaked out and gets all up in arms about lost people acting like lost people. I get that lost people are going to act like lost people. I'm not one of these preachers that looks at the culture and just flips out that, that people are sinning and doing, doing non-Christian things when they're non-believers. That Jesus said that was going to happen. So I don't get real worried about that kind of stuff. But again, there's something that's happened kind of in our culture over the last year that, that deeply concerns me. And, and when I saw it happening, I thought, man, at some point over the next couple of years, we need to talk about sex. And so this, this presents itself an opportunity for do, to do that. Um, and here's what is going on. There was a book that, re, that was released in 2011 that has become unbelievably popular in our culture. And I say that word unbelievably popular for a reason. I'll tell you more about this, the stats of this book in a second. I'm not going to name the book. There's no reason for, for, uh, for us to give it any more publicity than it's gotten on this, uh, in this room of the podcast. I haven't read the book, nor am I going to read the book. But uh, I was asked to do an endorsement by another author. She wrote 
a critique of it, and she asked me to endorse the book. I didn't, but I, I read her synopsis of the book, and so I, I have an idea of what the book's about. I'm not going to go into detail about the specifics of what the book's about because it's just not appropriate, and um, I, I wish I could because I think it would paint a, a more graphic picture of what we're talking about today. But I'll just put it this way. This book is full tilt erotica. It, it's not a harlequin romance, okay? It, it's not a love story. It is pornography. And what's, what's crazy about that, it's, it's not just pornography. It, it's not just this kind of mainstream idea of what we would think about in pornography. The stuff that the characters get involved in, for lack of better words, and I sat there for probably 15 minutes yesterday at my desk going, how can I describe this? I'll just put it this way. It is messed up. It is messed up. It is satanic what the message of this book is. I'm just going to leave it at that. Not that pornography is not satanic, it is, but this is just taking it to a whole nother level. Now, there's nothing new about pornography. There's nothing new about erotica. That stuff's been around forever. But what's, what's, what's shocking to me about this book is that it is one of the best-selling books, one of the most best-selling books in history. All right, now just stop and think about that for just a second. Um, to put it in context, in the United Kingdom, in, in, in Amazon.com UK, this book sold, this one book, sold more copies than all of the four Harry Potter books combined. Now, this, that's on Amazon UK. Um, in the United States, it broke the record for the number of weeks on the USA Today bestseller list. All right, now think about this. This is not a love story. This is full pornography, full tilt, erotica. Broke the record. The USA Today bestseller is 20 weeks on the USA Today bestseller list. 16 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Now here is why uh, this is deeply concerning to me. And I'm going to tell you one thing that's just kind of a personal thing for me. And then we'll get kind of to the point where we're going to the message. There's a couple reasons why this is, this is shocking to me. And it just I don't get it. And it's deeply concerning to me. One, I saw the research. One of the best-selling weeks of this book over the last year was the week before Mother's Day. Now, you do the math on that. Um, it's estimated that the vast majority of people reading this book are women. And I thought about that. I had my, my assistant do research on the book, and he's giving me all the stats. And when I read that about Mother's Day and the stats about how most of the people reading the book are women, um, I remembered a quote that my seminary professor, when I was getting my MDiv, said one time. For, for whatever reason, I don't remember, this, this quote just really stuck with me. He was teaching through the book of Amos. I was taking an Old Testament class, and he was talking about Amos. And it was one of the only times in Scripture that God is speaking directly to the women of Israel. And he is calling the women of Israel, God's women, out about their morality. He calls them cows of Bashan, and, uh, which I won't get into all that means, but he calls them cows. All right, So, so he's down on them. And, 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 and then my professor said something that just stuck with me. He made this. He said, women are always the last bastion of morality in any culture. He said, in every culture, women are always the last bastion of morality. And he said, when the women of a culture quit walking in morality, the culture is in a lot of trouble. And, uh, and, and I think that's what's going on with us, is that when we see women, a lot of whom are in the church, by the tens of millions are looking at this as an acceptable picture of sexual expression, then we've fallen a long way from God's view of sex. The second thing that kind of uh, concerns me about this book just simply is this, and you probably could have picked it up. It's just that this is the kind of book that 
up until just a couple of years ago, would have been relegated to porn shops or, or in the back shelves of, of uh, some dusty back shelf of a bookstore somewhere. But <laughs> I, I've been traveling a lot over the last month and been in a lot of airports and a lot of places. And this book is in the front kiosk of every single bookstore in this country. You walk by every bookstore and in every airport I've been in over the last month, and it is right there. It's the first thing you see. And so what this kind of is showing, just one example of many that we could talk about, is it is revealing, and I want you to hear this right here. Just the success of this book in mainstream culture is revealing just how far we, even as a church, have fallen from God's view and God's purpose for sex. Now, there's a lot of things I could talk about on the subject of sex. There's a lot of places we could go in regards to the subject of sex, but here's what I want to do today. I simply want to do this. I want us to talk about God's primary purpose for sex. I want to, I want to talk about, and for us as a church, as a Christian people, to understand why did God create this. Man didn't think this up, folks. God thought it up, and he did it for a reason. And I want us to understand the primary purpose for why God created it, if nothing else, that we can articulate it to our children and walk in it. As a people of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. I just want to very quickly look at one of the purposes of sex. Because it's going to kind of lead into the ultimate purpose of sex. Genesis 1 27. Uh, it's God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. In verse uh, 128. God blessed them and said to them. He said hey I want you to be fruitful and multiply. That's just the. Everybody gets that. We understand that. You've been to junior high, you've been taught this, just the kind of the number, the most basic purpose God has for sex is procreation. One of the first commandments God gives Adam and Eve, he said, hey, I want you to go have sex, I want you to go have babies, and so everybody gets that, I don't need to talk about that today. But here's the interesting thing, is that the church, for centuries, this is true in, in church history, a lot of famous theologians, the church for centuries, they argued that procreation was the only purpose for which God created sex. And that was an argument for, for a long time. But here's the thing. I, I think that theologically that's been disproven, and we'll talk about it today. But the question becomes, if that's the only reason why God created sex was for procreation, then why did he create sex the way that he did? If it's just for procreation, why did he create the way for, for us to procreate the way that he did? Now think about this. God could have designed a procreation to occur by, you know, man and woman just staring at each other's eyes for 45 seconds. And then they, and they, they conceive. He, he could have done that. God could have designed it where, I'm saying, think about it, he's God. He did it any way he wanted to. It could have been like a secret handshake, you know, it's like, you know, and then that's it. And you're good to go. But, but he didn't. He, he created this thing. He thought this thing up called, called sex. And I was listening to a Matt Chandler sermon several years ago. And he said this. And I went, well, that's interesting. I've never thought about that. But it's true. Is that God designed sex in such a way that we human beings are the only mammals in which the primary sexual position for us is face to face. We're the only mammals where that's the primary sexual position is face to face with our entire bodies touching and intermingling. Why did God create sex for us like that? I mean, just anatomically speaking, just, just purely looking at the anatomy, not even going into the, to the scripture at all, you begin to kind of see there's a deeper purpose that God has in mind when he created sex. 
And you begin to see the glimpses of this greater purpose in the book of Song of Solomon. If you want to turn there, that's fine. I'm going to read it in a second. You begin to see this, there's, there's something going, else going on here, but just beside procreation in the book of Sol- Song of Solomon. The book of Song of Solomon is so illicit in its description of sex that young Hebrew boys back in the day weren't even allowed to read it until they got to be a certain age. And, and they got kicked out of sermons too when, when, when the pastor was preaching on Song of Solomon. And you're about to see why because I'm going to read it to you. Now check it out. Song of Solomon 7, look at verse 1. The Bible is, is describing in very vivid terms the sexual experience between a husband and his wife. Verse 1 of chapter 7, man says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals. O prince's daughter, he starts at her feet. He's checking her feet out. He says, the curves are your hips are like jewels. Works his way up, goes to the hips. He says, they're like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. He says, your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. He says, your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Important safety tip, men. Do not tell your wife her belly looks like a heap of wheat. (laughs) I'm sure he meant this as a compliment. Your wife will not, all right? So just, just write that in your notes. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrobim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. Don't say that either. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Folks, he's not trying simply to conceive a child here. He's not. I mean, you, you, you see this very, very clearly in the Song of Solomon. This is a man in a very tender, very tender and very caring, in a very loving way, is enjoying and exploring every square inch of his wife's body. He goes on in verse 7, he says, and this is a couple of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. Um, he says, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. And I said, I will climb the palm tree and I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath be like apples. Amen. Right? He says, your body is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters and I'm going to climb the tree. I mean, that's what he just said. Folks, that's in the Bible. And that is the Holy Spirit-inspired word of the living God. And what he is painting here, what the Bible, what the God-breathed scripture is painting here is is an experience between a husband and a wife that is, it's so much deeper. And it's so much more intimate than simply the act of conceiving a child. All right, so... We've looked kind of anatomically at it, looked at the love aspect of it. So what is this deeper thing that God has in mind when he's when he created sex let's go back to Genesis 2 and we're going to unpack it theologically because the scripture comes pretty clear that God did have a bigger picture in mind with this thing Genesis 2 23 it said then the man said because God has created woman here he says this the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man also in verse 24 it says for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother they should be joined to his wife. He should be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Okay? Listen carefully. God creates man and woman. Listen now. He brings them together, and they're married, right, in the sight of God. And the two of them, the two of them physically 
and spiritually, that's key, they physically and spiritually become one flesh. Now, physically, they become one flesh through sex. Okay, they physically become one flesh. They spiritually become one flesh because God joins them together in the covenant of marriage. Okay, that God takes these two, that's what God does when you get married. He takes two people and he forms them into one. That's why Jesus, later on in the New Testament, he said, hey, when he was asked about divorce, he said, look, what God has joined together, you do not break apart. And so God takes two people, he joins them in the one, he forms them into a covenant with, with, with each other and with the Lord. And so this one flesh thing is happening physically and it's happening spiritually. Now, do you guys remember what Paul says is the big picture, the ultimate meaning of this one flesh union that happens in Genesis chapter 2, right? Do you remember... What Paul says, hey, this one flesh thing, physically and spiritually, that happened in Genesis 2, do y'all remember what Paul said that really was a picture of? All right, here's the thing. Paul tells us, Ephesians 5.31, Ephesians 5.31, Paul tells us, hey, this one flesh thing, physically and spiritually, that happened back in the day, this is what it was a picture of. Watch what he says in verse 31. He quotes Genesis 2. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, Physically and spiritually that happens. Now watch verse 32. Paul says this is what it was always meant to be a picture of. He says this mystery is great. Now those words are there for a reason. Every time the Bible says mystery, what it's saying is that it's something that has been hidden but now has been revealed. And so Paul is saying, hey, this one flesh thing happened that happened back in Genesis 2. That was a mystery and now it's been revealed. It's a bigger picture. Something bigger is going on here. And he tells us what it is. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The one flesh union that happened in Genesis chapter 2 was a, hit, it was a mystery. Now it's been revealed, Paul says. That one flesh, physical and spiritual union, here's what it was meant to be a picture of. That thing right there, that one flesh physically, that one flesh spiritually, that is a picture of the covenant union of Jesus Christ and his church. Folks, that is why God created marriage. Marriage... The primary purpose of marriage is not for your happiness. It is not, biblically speaking, primarily for your marriage. Hopefully you'll be happy in your marriage. That's not why God thought it up. And by the way, God thought up marriage. You guys know that, right? Amen? Y'all with me? Y'all know that, right? God's primary purpose for marriage is not your companionship. It's not the primary reason God thought it up. Paul just said it. The primary, ultimate purpose for marriage It's why you got married. It's why you're going to get married. It's so that you and your spouse can be a living, breathing, physical picture to the world of Jesus and his bride. That is why God thought it up. So it would ultimately be that picture of the gospel. That's what the one flesh union does. It displays the gospel. Okay, so where does uh, sex fit into the picture? We've already talked about the fact that there's something going on there, something deeper in the heart and mind of God besides conceiving children. That's it. Here's what it is. Listen to this. When you and your husband or your wife, when you make love for the first time on your wedding night, and then every time after that, here's what's happening. Yes, you are displaying your love to each other. 
You are showing your love to each other. That is one of the things going on. Song of Solomon absolutely shows us that. He says, I love you. You are beautiful. You're amazing. I love you. You're displaying love for each other. But that's not the only thing going on biblically. Uh, we, we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that on your, uh, when, you, when you make love to your wife or your husband on, that, on, your, on the wedding night and every time after that you are, you are taking care of each other's physical needs. 1 Corinthians is clear about that, that wives, you're to make love to your husbands and you're to do it often as, a, as to help him, as his helpmate, to walk him and help him avoid temptation. Same is true for wives. So we know that that thing's going on too biblically, but it's absolutely more than that. Marriage is a picture of the gospel God, here it is, God created sex to be a physical reminder and a physical picture of the covenant we have with God through Jesus Christ, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's face-to-face, intermingled bodies, one flesh thing. God thought it up. He created it, yes, for physical needs, yes, to display love, yes, to make babies, but it's to be a reminder to us of the covenant we are in with each other and with God. God's people are always forgetting the covenant they are in with the Lord. The Israelites were always forgetting the covenant. And God was always having to remind them of the covenant. They'd run after other lovers and God would have to tap on the shoulder and go, hey, I'm your God, you're my people. He was always having to remind them of the covenant they were in with him. And we're the same way. We spend days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks not thinking about the fact that marriage primarily is a covenant with God and a covenant with each other. God created sex to remind us of that covenant. It's a picture of it. Okay? Sex is so much more. It's so much eternally more than than just this experience of physical pleasure. It is a really amazing and cool way that God thought up for us to remember and to remind each other of this thing we represent, which is Jesus. And so you're like, Matt, you're telling me that, that I'm supposed to think about Jesus when I'm making love to my wife? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of what... The Bible's saying, and I, I taught this point, I taught this point like five years ago, and I got, I got several emails like, are you saying, Matt, that I'm supposed to picture Jesus in my mind when I'm making love to my wife? No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but it is biblically clear that that's why God thought it up. It's to be a covenant reminder. Okay, so you, we get the physical thing, but, but if you are separating the spiritual from the physical then you're missing the point. You're missing the primary purpose for why God created sex. It's meant to be a covenant reminder between you and your wife. Okay, now, a couple things to consider. In light of this truth, that God's primary purpose of sex, one is this marriage thing is a picture of Jesus. This face-to-face intermingling of bodies and souls is meant to be a reminder and a picture of that covenant love with you and Christ. A couple things to consider in light of that. One is this explains why sex is so destructive outside of the covenant of marriage. All of a sudden it makes sense. Okay, God thought this covenant thing up to be a picture of Christ in the church. Sex is, a, is this little physical picture of that, a reminder to each other of that. That's why it's so destructive outside of the covenant of marriage. Have you ever, have you ever thought about and wondered like, why sex outside of the context of marriage and the covenant of marriage carries with it so much baggage and emotional turmoil? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, why? And if you're intellectually honest... Um, it, it does. 
You can't say that it does not, if you're being intellectually honest. It does carry emotional baggage. Why? Here's the answer. God did not, it's just straightforward. God didn't create sex to be experienced between two people that aren't in a covenant. He just didn't. He designed sex to be experienced inside of that thing, the covenant of marriage with each other and with him. Sex outside of marriage is a product of the fall. And since sex outside of marriage is a product of the fall, it will naturally carry with it the consequences of the fall. Okay, now, what are the consequences? What are the sexual consequences of the fall? All right, you got Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. Sin has not entered the picture. And what did it say about Adam and Eve before sin entered the picture? Do you remember how the, the Bible described them? It says they were naked and they were unashamed. But sin enters into the picture. And what happened to them after sin entered the picture? It says that all this shame and guilt and, and sorrow comes flooding into the scene. That's a result of the fall. Sex outside of that Christ-saturated covenant of marriage is almost always accompanied by guilt and shame and remorse. And that is because sex is being experienced in the context of sin and not in the context of covenant. And if we're honest again with ourselves, only in the context of the covenant apart from sin can we too be naked and unashamed. It's critical for us, uh, for those of you that are singles, understanding why you remain separate, the purpose of sex. It has to be more than sex is wrong, sex is wrong, sex is wrong, I'm not going to do it. That won't last. You won't make it. When you understand what the purpose of it is, that God designed it inside the covenant to be a picture of the covenant, then you're like, okay, I get why I'm doing it. And that it's destructive outside of the covenant. It's like a fire, a fire in its proper context, a fireplace can be contained, and, and, and in that proper context, it can provide warmth and, 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 uh, and light and comfort, and it can be absolutely enjoyed, but you take that same fire outside of the proper context, and you start the fire on your living room carpet. It'll burn the house down. Sex is the exact same way inside the covenant of marriage. It's one of the most fulfilling and amazing things you can ever experience, but as a lot of you guys have discovered outside of the place and purpose God intended it can be horribly destructive to our souls. Young men that are single, you got to take the lead in that. you got to guard this girl's soul that you are dating. And if you are pressuring her physically, if you are pressuring her to have sex before the covenant in which God intended, what you are saying to that girl and she may never admit it to you, but what you're saying to that girl is you care more about your physical needs than you do the care of her soul. And that is, that's breaking her up in ways you won't realize till years later. Ladies, you don't marry a man that cares more about his physical needs than he does your soul. That'll come back to bite you in ways you have no idea. Same for you men about women. All right? It's destructive outside of the covenant. God, that's a product of the fall. God designed it that way. Second thing to remember here, in light of God's primary purpose for sex, we start kind of moving into the married realm here, is uh, a sexual experience that is purely physical but doesn't also have the spiritual, is at best a mere shadow of what God created and designed it to be. 
All right, it's a shadow. The, the best, I used to hear pastors say this, and I, I just ah, that's just a pastor saying this. But man, I'm telling you, it's true. The best sex you will ever have is not when you're only experiencing the physical purpose of sex, which is the physical pleasure aspect, but it's also when you're experiencing this spiritual purpose of sex, which is when you and your wife are making love to each other and, and, and this reminder of the covenant love you have with Jesus. That's the full expression of what it can be. Only when the physical and spiritual are happening together is the fullest possible sexual experience even attainable. And our culture just does not get that. They don't get it and they don't believe it. If you were just to ask the question, you know, who has the best sex life in America? Probably the generation before us would have said something like Hugh Hefner. Maybe the culture now would say the the characters in this book that I was talking about earlier. And the reason they would say that is because they have reached the the pinnacle of the physical aspect of of sex. You you know, you got Hugh Hefner that, I don't know, he's old and busted now. But back in the day, I mean, he, he lived in the Playboy Mansion with five or six women, perfect bodies. Slept with different one every night, probably maybe more than that. And the world would look at that and say, this guy has found the best sexual experience that life can offer. And, and men, maybe you would never admit this, but at the end of the day, there may be some of you here that feel like you maybe are missing out in life somehow because you know you're never going to experience that. I'm telling you that this is strongly implied in the text that, that it is at best Hugh Hefner's sex life, the folks in that book, it's at best a shadow. It's at best, on the best day, it's at best a fraction of the fulfillment that married believers can experience in Jesus Christ. Why? Again, Hugh Hefner can only experience the physical. He cannot experience the, uh, the, the spiritual. And God created it and designed it for it to be both. And this was a major step for Jennifer and I. Happened five or six years ago. Major, major step in our marriage where we begin to view our marriage in light of the gospel. And then we begin to act toward each other and treat each other in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I was a college student and I was dating Jennifer and getting engaged, I had an incredibly selfish, self-serving view of marriage, incredibly self-serving view of sex. I'm, you know, I'm sort of kidding here what I'm about to say, but just about sort of. Is I kind of had this view, and like college guys are here today, they're going to hear this, they're going to be like, yeah, that's what it's going to be like. As I had this view of sex, that this is what was going to happen. That, you know, I would go to work, and that I would come home, and Jen would be waiting for me, naked, right? <laughs> like, Five or six times, you hear old men laughing. <laughs> Five or six times a week that was going to happen. And then we were going to have mind-altering sex till the wee hours of the morning. And that was going to be it. Well, college guys, it just don't work that way. It just doesn't. And I just had, and looking back at it now, it's laughable. I just incredibly self-serving view um, of marriage. Very selfish. I was, I was, I looked at my wife I would have never admitted this, but I realized now I looked at my wife as a person who's supposed to give to me. I looked at my wife as a person that was supposed to meet my needs, and then if she's meeting my needs and giving to me, then maybe I would love her and pursue her and cherish her in return. I was kind of sitting there with my arms folded saying, you know, 
subconsciously, hey, come and serve and love me, and then I'll love you in return. And my view of, that's a view of marriage. Some of you are still in that today. That's a, a view of marriage that's not being looked at through the lens of the gospel. And, and, and over the last several years, I have become to understand, I began to understand the gospel of Jesus like never before. And I, and I realized this, that I'm supposed to treat my wife in light of how Christ treated me. I'm supposed to love my wife in light of how Jesus Christ has loved me, okay? I, I realized that when I did not deserve it and when I had not earned it, Jesus still pursued me. Jesus still loved me. Jesus still cherished me. He still came after me. He didn't sit there with his arms folded and say, hey, Matt, come and pursue me and love me. Then maybe I'll love you back. He came, he came to me first. That's why it says that we love because Christ first loved us. And I have, over the last several years, begun to act out on my marriage and view my marriage in light of that. Like towards my wife in light of that. I've begun to look at my marriage in light of the gospel, which means... I give to my wife even if she's not given to me. I give to my wife. I don't take from her emotionally, physically, spiritually. I've begun to look at my marriage in light of the gospel, which means that I love her first, even if she's not loving me. I look at my marriage in light of the gospel, which means that I serve my wife even if she's not serving me. I cherish my wife even if she's not cherishing me. I pursue my wife in the way that she needs to be pursued, even if she's not pursuing me in the way that I need to be pursued. Why? Because that's how Christ loved, cherished, pursued, served me. It's called the gospel. You see that? That's how we start looking at marriage and sex in light of the gospel. It's the gospel and, right? And, and I'm telling you guys, it's been amazing. It's been amazing how my wife has responded to this gospel displaying love I'm not saying what I'm about to say in kind of this cliche kind of way. After 16 years of marriage, we are more in love today than we have ever been in our whole marriage. And that includes dating. We're just kind of silly in love with each other. We'll be in the, we'll be in the kitchen. We'll be slow dancing. Our kids will walk by and just roll their eyes at us. I sent my wife the other night, just out of the blue, no reason, flowers, a love song. We, we, it's just, it's gross. I mean, but we're just, this gospel thing has, has made her love for me and my love for her blossom in a way we, I didn't even know. And you just throw sex right into the middle of that. It has become what I never could have imagined it becoming when I was in college. So much deeper, so much richer. Jennifer, <laughs> Jennifer was the same way. When she was in college, she, uh, and when we were getting engaged, she thought that this is what was going to happen when we got married. She thought that I was going to be, from the time we you know, got married and forever, I was going to be like this cross between Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice and Noah from The Notebook, right? <laughs> and that every day I would look at her and say, you have bewitched me, body and soul, right? <laughs> and then we would go on a canoe ride together with swans. And then after that, I would cook her dinner with candlelight, and we would have warm, intimate conversation five, six nights a week till the wee hours of the morning. <laughs> and she got married to me, and that didn't happen. And uh, matter of fact, she told me yesterday, I'm still waiting for the canoe ride with swans. And so, but she had these expectations that ultimately, at the end of the day, I think we're, we're 
somewhat selfish too. And when I didn't meet the standards, it produced disappointment in her. But God began to work in her heart too and began to reveal to her through the scripture that she also was to display the love of Christ to me in our marriage and through our sex life regardless of how romantic I was being and, and uh, regardless of how much I pursued and cherished her. She wrote a letter when I preached on sex five years ago. She wrote a letter to the women of the congregation because God was really revealing this to her. And I really, I, w- I want to read it to you. It's so good. She said, women, let me encourage you to use this amazing gift of God, this blessing, talking about sex, as a tool to minister to your husband. You're the only one that can do that in all the earth. You were given this precious gift from God as a means to minister to your husband in a way that speaks love to him, possibly better than any other way. Use it to cherish him. Use it to comfort him in times of trial and grief, for there are many biblical examples of this. Use use it to show him your love and admiration for him. Use it to guard him from temptation. And most of all, use sex to remind him of the covenant the two of you have before God. And as you do, it will bring glory to God. God has created women to enjoy sex, but somehow in our minds it has become a duty and we forget that he has created it for our enjoyment too. So as Hebrew says, throw off the sin that so easily entangles you, whether that is your past sexual sin, your past disobedience, your insecurity, or your current bitterness. Throw it off, run the race, fix your eyes on Jesus. Those are not just words from my wife. She has lived out on a very consistent basis that picture of the gospel. And church, it has ministered to me in ways I cannot articulate to you. And through this gospel-centered approach and view that she has taken towards our sex life and towards our marriage, she has created an environment where it is an absolute joy for me to love her like Christ loved the church. And here's what's happened. It's because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, you've got this... You've got, this, you've got this guy who is saying, I'm going to love you first, and I'm going to serve you first, and I'm going to cherish you first no matter what. And at the very same time, you've got this woman who's saying, in light of the gospel, no, I'm going to love you first, and I'm going to serve you first, and I'm going to pursue you first no matter what happens. And when that happens, folks, I'm telling you, when the gospel starts being the center of what you do in light of what Jesus has done, in light of what your marriage and your sex represents, when that happens, I'm telling you, that is a recipe for an amazing sex life, but more importantly, it's a recipe for an amazing, God-glorifying, satisfying, fulfilling marriage. Okay? And it starts with the gospel. I don't care whether you're single or whether you're married. God's absolute best for your life, God's absolute best for your life is not found on the New York Times bestseller list. God's best for your life is not found on the front kiosk of a bookstore. God's best for your life is found in his book. Let's ask him today. Let's ask him, Lord, let all of my life be viewed and acted upon through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord, I, I know with beyond a shadow of a doubt there are many of us, including myself in this room, that have fallen short of your standard in this place. And there are many of us that even as we hear about what sex is meant to represent, 
perfect picture of your love for us and that our sin and our failure comes flooding to mind and how we haven't displayed that picture. And Lord, I just pray that we would be reminded today uh, of the cross, of our complete forgiveness that's found through the cross. And that as Aaron said earlier, that when you look at us, you don't see our sin anymore, but you just see the blood of Jesus. And so today we're forgiven. We're clean. God's not down on us. He loves us. He accepts us. And Lord, I just pray, I pray for marriages in this room. Lord, I pray that husbands and wives, no matter what's going on, would begin to love each other in light of the gospel and serve each other in light of the gospel. That sex for them would no longer be this self-serving thing, but it would be a reminder to each other of, of the covenant we have in you. Lord, I lift up to you the singles in this room, Lord. I, I pray that you would give them the strength to walk well with you uh, until the day that they're married and then beyond that. And, and if they're, you never bless them or give them that opportunity, that you would help them find absolute satisfaction in you through their singleness. And they'd be content with that until they see you face to face. Lord, we love you. We praise you. I pray that you would use us to help bring this world back to your view of this and that we would not move towards the world's view. I ask that in Jesus' name.